Um, so I think that it that it shouldn't be that hard. I should also tell you the Odyssey, which comes next, is both easier. Well, this is a three. This is a three-way both, both easier, um, uh, shorter, and um, more full of interesting plot. Um, of the two, the Iliad is, I think, in pretty much everyone's opinion who studies it, including mine. Of the two, the Iliad is the greater, but that's like saying that King Lear is greater than Hamlet. Um, however, the Odyssey is a little bit um, more interesting on a first reading. Um, not that the Iliad isn't interesting. I also think the second half of the Iliad is um, there'll be it'll have more of a page turner aspect. That is, there's a whole lot of setup in the first half. And one thing to know about Homer is that um, he's his greatness is not what a lot of people. Um, used to think about him a kind of primitive greatness. That is, he's not a person who's just able to spin this out forever, um, and what you're doing is just is just plunging into a world that Homer is describing um, with with um, a kind of uh, tremendous and capacious um, um, surrounding of you. He certainly is doing that, but he's an amazingly sophisticated plotter. And part of that sophistication is that you may not be aware of how sophisticated his plotting is. Um, it's a little bit easier to see in the Odyssey, where the plot is extremely complex, but the complexity of that plot um, is available to you. you it, it's, it's a little bit easier to trace. The plotting in the Iliad is probably even more sophisticated than the plotting in the Odyssey, um, but not as obvious. Um, however, the great thing that is being set up for in the Iliad, and that Homer has um, indicated a few times, is Achilles' return and the reasons for his return. Um, and the reasons for his return are extraordinary, and the result of his return is also extraordinary. But here, the very beginning of the Iliad tells you that the poem is the anger of Achilles, sing goddess the anger of Peleus' son, Achilleos, or anger sin, sing goddess of Peleus' son, Achilleos. Um, and so far we've read or heard a whole lot about anger, um, but not that much of it is about Achilles' anger. Um, Achilles is absent for most of the first half of the Iliad. And the thing is, Homer is holding him in reserve um, and holding the story, which is the central subject of the story, Achilles' anger. That hasn't really been what he's talking about yet. He's talked about the results of that anger, which is that the Achaeans are having a hard time without Achilles. Not an impossible time, but a hard time without Achilles. So he's talked talking about the results of that anger, but Achilles' actual anger um, has only come up a couple of times, um, significantly come up, but only come up a couple of times in the first half of the Iliad. Um, yesterday, uh, yesterday, um, Tuesday, whatever today is, it's Friday, um, Tuesday we talked a little bit about epic similes, and um, we'll probably talk, there's more to say about them. Um, part of what there is to say about them, I'll just make a general comment, is that um, Homer 
I guess I'll make a gen uh, general comment um, about several things that Homer does. Um, Homer writes in what's called dactylic hexameter. That is, the line of um, Homeric verse is, um, is in dactyls, and they're six feet per line. You don't really need to know much about this, so don't freak. Don't worry about it. But um, dactyl, as you probably know from the word pterodactyl, what, what dactyl means is finger in Greek. Um, so a dactyl follows the way your finger looks, which is long, short, short. It's the three joints on your finger. That's why it's called dactylic. Long, short, short. We, in English, would say stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Um, in English, there are very few dactylic poems, but Longfellow wrote one um, that begins, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlock. So if you hear the rhythm of that and hear that it's not a Shakespearean rhythm, it's not to be or not to be, that is the question, but da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlock. That's what Greek rhythm sounds like. For the Greeks, however, it was how long it took to say a syllable rather than how stressed it was. So we can't quite hear that in English. We can sometimes almost hear it, but we can't quite hear it. But it doesn't matter that we can't hear it. They heard it the way we hear stress. They heard length the way we hear stress. I'm only telling you this to say that it's long, short, short. Um, Rather than stressed, unstressed, unstressed, it's actual visual, the visual of your finger will tell you what the meter looks like. Um, so that the Iliad begins, um, this is the forest prime. Those are the first words of the Iliad. There's more to be said, but I won't say more about that. The first words of the Aeneid, which we'll get to, um, also written in dactylic hexameter, but in Latin is arma, anyone know? Actually, what is it? Kano. Yes. I'm so glad you memorized it. No, it's good. No, no, no. I'm glad you did. Yeah. So just if you if you just hear that's the Greek, and then arma wirumque kano, that's the Latin. Um, arms and the man I sing or of arms in the man I sing, arma wirumque cano, mene naieta thea, same rhythm, in, same meter in Latin and Greek. Okay, you don't have to know about the meter, you should know, now you do know, but you don't have to know about it. Um, but what you do have to know is that poetry, um, one of the constraints of poetry is that every line is with a little bit of flexibility and variation. Every line is in the same meter. Um, so that when you tell a story, you're telling a story, unlike in prose, you're telling a story using a template which is far less flexible as template than anything in prose would be. Um, and so that constraint on telling the story is one constraint that Homer has. Another constraint that he has is that he uses typically um, similes to make things that you may not be familiar with, like this horrendous 10-year war with violence at every moment, to make those things familiar to people who are the kind of people who sit around listening to epics, rather than the kind of people who do things that epics are about. Now, those two sets overlap. Those two sets um, intersect. But still, 
Homer has to use a lot of similes, and similes like meter will get boring fast, will get old fast, unless, as with meter, you figure out different ways of using the basic template um, and you figure out ways to get surprising variation into it. So um, the thing that I want to say about simile is we will return to talking about Homeric similes. We won't um, pursue them very much today, although there's one that I want to look at. We will return to talking about Homeric similes because if you were actually to do um, a subtle study of how Homer uses similes, what you would find is the use of simile, there, there are seven or eight different kinds of simile that he uses. Um, and part of what we were looking at on Tuesday were the similes that don't quite match up with the things that they're describing. And the reason they don't match up, the ones that I wanted you to notice, are that the similes add on someone who is responding to the storm that's coming or to the fire that they see on the mountain. The shepherd gets frightened or people can see the fire burning far off on the mountains. Um, but in the thing that the simile is describing, in the tenor, there are no such people matching up with the shepherd who is seeing the thing in the simile. So that matchup that isn't quite a matchup that's um, one of the ways that Homer gets variety into a structure that otherwise doesn't have a whole lot of play the way, say, a novel does, the way a novel um, can go off in a million different directions and do things in a million different ways. The epic poem is highly restricted by virtue of the fact that it's an oral poem. It's highly restricted in its means, in the instruments of its telling. And part of Homer's sophistication and genius is to keep you interested despite that fact to keep you interested because he's always finding surprises in a situation where it doesn't look like there's, there are many more surprising things he can do. Um, the first half of the Iliad is all set up for a whole lot of amazing and surprising things that are going to happen in the second half. Not all set up, um, it's interesting in itself, but set up for a lot of amazing and surprising things that are going to happen in the second half. So that's partly just a promise for you. Um, one of the great, nevertheless, one of the great and most moving parts of the first half, um, and one that we'll start talking about now, um, is the conversation between um, Hector and Andromache when he returns um, to the house, to his house in the midst of battle. This is in book six. Um, and um, what's happened, it's actually very interesting to um, to see what Homer has to do in a, in a kind of skill or technical sense to get Hector back to the house. Um, we won't, um, uh, it's not really so important, but um, as, as a moment of plot, but it is important as a moment of moving characters around. Um, and it's worthwhile to see um, how characters get moved around. Um, which is that Hector is wondering what to do 
um, as um, the Trojans are doing badly, and he gets advice from a soothsayer, which is to go back to the city and do a sacrifice. Um, and the sacrifice is of absolutely no importance, but the important thing is that Hector should go back to the city. That's what Homer wants. So he gives a reason for Hector to go back to the city. It's like someone saying, oh no, I forgot my cell phone and going back upstairs in a movie. Um, the reason they go back upstairs from the movie maker's point of view is not, oh, they forgot their cell phone and we want to waste another minute and a half of audience time as they get their cell phone and come back down, but it's as soon as someone says, I forgot my cell phone, I'll be right back. You know something's going to happen. That is either upstairs they're going to see something that they otherwise might not have seen, or the person that they leave downstairs waiting for them is going to get kidnapped, or there's going to be an explosion, but something is going to happen. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have forgotten their cell phone. Homer is doing the same thing. Hector is sent back to the city because Homer wants him to meet Helen and then to meet Andromache and to have a conversation with them. So, so what Homer does is he puts in a setup, go back to the city and make sure the sacrifice is done. Um, and you're thinking, oh, God, another stupid sacrifice with double-fold fat, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's what Homer is thinking. He's thinking sacrifice, fine. Um, that's a good reason to get someone to go somewhere. And what he really wants is for Hector to go back. In the same way that when Hector sends the scout um, to see what the Achaeans are doing, the reason that scout is sent is so that Odysseus and Diomedes can slaughter um, the people whom they find out about from the scout. So that there are events that Homer is using that, that he describes in the same um, rapid and continuous and unstinting pace that he describes everything, whether it seems important to you or not important. But some of the apparently unimportant events are actually there in order to move characters or around to move characters around to set up the next scenes. Um, just seeing that Homer does this, it's a very basic narrative trick but one that you don't actually realize Homer is doing because you kind of get caught up in the hip, 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 hypnotizing way that he tells the story. You don't realize actually how, much, how many things in the story are actually transitions or joints or hinges that get him from one event to another, um, get him from one, get a character from, from one place to the place that he needs the character. Okay, then we get to, this is page 164, which, or um, actually a little bit earlier, 163, which is book six um, around line 390. Um, and Hector has been looking for Andromache, and he meets the housekeeper, um, and Hector goes home um, backward by the way he'd come through the well-laid streets. This is at 391. Um, so as he had come to the gates on his way through the great city, the Scaean gates whereby he would issue into the plain, there at last his own generous wife came running to meet him, Andromache, the daughter of high-hearted Aetion, Aetion, who had dwelt underneath wooded Placos, in Thebe below Placos, lord over the Calician people. It was his daughter. Anyone take any classes from Alice Calician? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's that's Armenian. That's yeah, this may be Armenian too. Mm -hmm. I don't know actually, but it could well be. Um, because this is all taking place in Turkey in in what was then what we um, in ancient times called Anatolia. 
Um, it was his daughter who was given to Hector of the bronze helm. She came to him there, and beside her went an attendant carrying the boy in the fold of her bosom, a little child, only a baby, Hector's son, the admired, beautiful as a star shining, whom Hector called Scamandrios, after the river Scamander, which is the great river outside of Troy, um, whom Hector called Scamandrios. Um, and if you're listening to this, you may stop there and think, okay, this beautiful child, Scamandrios, that's okay. It's partly okay because I've never heard of him. Um, and if you've heard of someone, you may have heard bad things about them. But here's this beautiful child, Scamandrios. This is if you're a Greek listening to this. Not, um, you may not have heard of a lot of these people. But still, whom Hector called Scamandrios. But all of the others as Styanax. And suddenly, if you're a Greek, you will have heard of him. Do people know what happens to Styanax? So that famous name in the story of the fall of Troy, um, the Iliad, you know, doesn't tell the story of the fall of Troy. Um, we, it, it only tells you about three weeks or so of battle in the ninth year, although it tells you Troy will fall. Um, so Astyanax is um, Hector and Andromache's daughter. And when Troy falls, he is, he is thrown over the wall of the city and killed as a baby a year from now. So if you're hearing this story and you know the story of Astyanax as the Greek audience would, that moment of relief, the child whom Hector called Scamandrios, and you will think, oh good, that child beautiful as a star, I was afraid it was Astyanax, but it isn't. And then a line later, you get a shiver when you find out, no, actually it is. Whom Hector called Scamandrios, but all of the others Astyanax, meaning lord of the city, since Hector alone saved Ilion. Um, Troy will not survive without Hector. Again, Homer is underlining that. Hector smiled in silence as he looked on his son, but she, Andromache, stood close beside him, letting her tears fall, and clung to his hand, and called him by name and spoke to him, Dearest, your own great strength will be your death, and you have no pity on your little son nor on me, ill-starred, who soon must be your widow. For presently the Achaeans gathering together will set upon you and kill you. And for me it would be far better to sink into the earth when I have lost you, for there's no other consolation for me after you've gone to your destiny. Only grief, since I have no father, no honored mother. So... Andromache says, you are all that is left to me, and your own strength will bring you to perdition. It's your strength that will lead to your death. Um, a prophecy like this, does it come true or not? Yeah, in any decent narrative, it has to come true. And of course, it will come true. Um, every time there are prophecies of this sort, not necessarily what the prophets say. You should listen to the prophets, but they sometimes disagree with each other, and they sometimes get things wrong, and the question, what do you do if an eagle picks up a snake and then drops the snake? Those are all important questions. Um, but Homer is much more interested in moments of what you could call um, passionate utterance, where people say things 
And by saying them, the story tells you that these things will come about. Um, when Andromache speaks, she speaks with a certain kind of authority. Um, however, Achilles will say things like, there's no way that I am going to go back and fight with you. Let that day be a day of misery for me. And of course, he will go back and fight with them, and it will be a day of misery. So there are many moments in the Iliad, and Homer particularly likes this, where people say, "I'm." it's sort of the Macbeth thing. When Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, that's when um, I'll fight with you, or, or no man of woman born will ever get me. Um, there are plenty of moments like that in the Iliad, where people say things as meaning passionately that something is not going to happen, but the dramatic or the epic irony is that they are actually giving an accurate forecast of the future, only they don't know it. They think they're saying, never, not until X, will I do Y. And whenever you get a formulation like that in the Iliad, what that tells you is that X will happen and that character will do Y, even though he is denying it, even though he thinks that what he's saying is he will never do it. What he's actually saying is, yeah, no, he will do it. Um, Virgil likes this a lot, too. All, all um, um, writers with an ironic bent like this. But again, it's important to see how sophisticated Homer is. And this is one element of his sophistication. Is your hand up? Yeah. Yeah, but also Achilles, I mean, if he really was serious, he would have left. He? I mean, he has his own ship. He has his own people. He oh, Achilles, yeah. He could have left. I mean, but he stayed. Well, he thinks of leaving, um, and finally he stays um, partly because Patroclus doesn't want to leave. Um, he partly stays to see what will happen, um, and he considers whether he should leave or not, and, and um, the wrong decision he makes is not to leave. Um, that's another part of the irony. But it's not that he doesn't think about it, um, but what he wants is to taunt Agamemnon and taunt the other Greeks by being there but not helping them. And he also wants to see disaster visited upon them. Um, so you're quite right to bring that up as an issue, but just notice that Homer knows that that's an issue and he brings it up as well. Yeah, Julian. Uh, just a side note, I, I think J.K. Rowling uses the names Commanderius for one of her characters. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a commander and the author of one of the side books that were written. <laughs> yeah. remember that. What, what did he do? Probably she's also thinking of Salamander, uh, Scamander, Salamander, Newt, yeah. Newt Gingrich, well, Battle for Control. J.K. Rowling really did a lot of significant names, though, so sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so she goes on. It was then she says, "But you're everything to me. I have no father, no honored mother. It was brilliant Achilleus who slew my father, Eation." when he stormed the strong-founded citadel of the Kilikians, Thebe of the towering gates. He killed Eation, but did not strip his armor, for his heart respected the dead man, but burned the body in all its elaborate war gear, and piled a grave mound over it, and the nymphs of the mountains, daughters of Zeus of the ages, planted elm trees about it. So Achilles killed her father. Um, he's not been... Um, her favorite person. But even though he killed her father and left her an orphan, um, she says something important here and something that we'll have occasion to talk about, which is that he didn't dishonor her father's dead body. 
um, there is an issue here um, of the honor. Yeah. Um, I guess I was just thinking, like, uh, a little bit about the way time is handled in this book. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you know, it is handled really strangely. But, but like, how, what, when is this supposed to be that Achilles kills Andromache's father? Um... I'm not sure. There's there's probably scholarship that works it out, but um, I think probably before the Trojan War. Um, what the Tro- So just what the history behind this is is for a long time people thought this was pure myth that there was no Troy and no Trojan War. Um, Byron made fun of those people in his great poem um, Don Juan when um, he says time obliterates everything. And he just says, in wonder, at a time when no one thought Troy was real, he says, in wonder, I've seen Troy doubted. Time will doubt of Rome. That is for Lord Byron at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, What he thinks is that the whole world is the planet of the apes scenario. That is that civilizations seem extremely important, and then they disappear, and they are utterly and completely forgotten. Um, epic is partly about remembering things that would otherwise be forgotten. Um, however, as you probably know, Schliemann, the archaeologist who was obsessed with um, Homer, um, thought Troy must exist, and he went and um, did some digs and found it. Um, so the city of Troy actually did exist, although, are you going to, yeah. Didn't Schliemann also screw up the archaeological site when he was looking for Troy? Because yeah. he kind of dug through half of it or something? Yeah, Schliemann did a lot of screwing up, and he also made a lot of mistakes. Um, but, you know, so, so probably Troy would have been found anyhow and preserved better. Um, but, nevertheless, it was Schliemann's passion um, that demonstrated that Troy really existed in a way that Byron couldn't have known that it existed. Um, it then turned out fairly recently, um, it turns out that there is the fragment of a poem. There's basically only one line that survives from about 1300 BCE, which refers to Windy Ilion, the war in Windy Ilion. Um, so probably the, the first um, version of the story that Homer heard was this poem. No one really knows when Homer lived, um, but right now the best thinking is around 800 BCE. So he'd heard, um, so there were stories that were four or 500 years about things that had happened four or 500 years earlier. Um, so even for Homer, probably the best idea is that the Trojan War is something that had occurred several centuries. He wouldn't have known how many centuries because that kind of timekeeping um, uh, wasn't established, but many hundreds of years before Homer tells the story. So this is a story, you know, um, it's a little like Braveheart. Um, it's of a past that's a long time ago. Um, what was the reality of the thing? Well, part of this, as we'll see in the Odyssey, is that Homer is very interested in how poetry transmutes um, complete nothing um, fights over land um, between shepherds um, and between farmers into glorious war. Um, That is, Homer did not believe the Trojan War, um, well, assuming that the Homer of the Iliad is the same Homer as the Homer of the Odyssey. The Odyssey, the irony is more palpable. 
Um, I think they're the same, and I think they should be treated as the same. Um, Homer, Homer um, spends a whole lot of time glorifying what are actually just brawls, um, and brawls that may go on for a long time, but they really are just brawls. Um, and describing these things as though they're um, occurring among people who are godlike. Um, Homer knows they aren't. And part of what he's doing is producing a highly ironic overtelling of um, stories of people just getting into rumpuses. Um, and um, part of the irony there is a kind of tribute to what poetry does, which is it takes garbage and turns it into gold. Um, but Homer also wants you to remember what Yeats calls the foul rag and bone shop of the heart in what might be Yeats's last poem, um, The Circus Animal's Desertion. He says that where poetry comes from, no matter how shining and beautiful it is, um, the ladder that you climb to get to that beautiful depiction starts where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Um, that's something that Homer knows as well. So the question, when did all this happen, um, in a way, the answer is there were just a lot of fights over land and over women um, and over possessions. And um, over time, these fights over land and over women and, and over possessions became legendary and became mythologized. Um, but it was all mud and gore and disgustingness, and, and no one had these fantastic, um, this fantastic armor and godlike stuff till much later. Um, so um, the... Um, question, when did these things happen? Um, in the myth, presumably, although not necessarily before the Trojan War began, um, in reality, it's just one of a series of brawls. And in that series of brawls, um, the same person whom Hector is going against now had killed, and, um, killed Andromache's father. Um, so trying to figure it out time-wise, the fact that Nestor is still fighting um, when he's when he's three generations um, older than anyone else, um, means yeah, people can fight a long time. Odysseus is able to fight at the end of um, um, the Odyssey. He's able to fight as powerfully as he could fight twenty years earlier when he first went to um, the Trojan War. Achilles, as you know or should know, is much younger than Odysseus. Um, Odysseus has come and gotten him and brought him to the Trojan War um, when he, Achilles, is a young man. Actually, if Homer's thinking about that, that would probably indicate that it's part of the Trojan War. That is, yeah. that um, the fact that Achilles has not fought before, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. The fact that Achilles has not fought before, before Odysseus and Nestor come and get him. Um, would mean that this fight happens um, as part of the whole long series of um, endless um, squabbling that gets depicted here as the Trojan War. Um, but don't worry too much. It's actually in the Odyssey that Homer is unbelievably careful about time um, because the Odyssey, he's just he has nested narratives within nested narratives within nested narratives, and he keeps unbelievable track of them. The Iliad isn't so much about keeping track of those. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not so much worried about the inconsistencies though. I'm just fascinated by them because mm -hmm. like I don't know what's going on, but, but there's it's, it's consistently and and the people in the Iliad are mistaking. 
time as much as Homer, though. Like, I mean, with there's there's this guy from Troy. I can't remember his name right now, but he talks about how he left and or he, he he's actually from Lycia, I think. Uh huh. Um, he left and came to Troy. Uh, he says, um, and would like to return to his, you know, his wife and his son still a baby. Still a baby. It's like yeah. nine years. Yeah. Well, so the Trojans are, I, actually, th this is good because this brings us to, to what this scene is also demonstrating. The difference between the Greeks and the Trojans is the Greeks are, an, are the Achaeans. We shouldn't call them Greeks. Um, the Achaeans and the Trojans are, the Achaeans are an expeditionary force, and they are far from home, and they've been far from home for a long time. The Trojans are at home, and um, their allies are from cities near Troy on land. So the Trojan allies on the whole come on land from really nearby towns. We're talking distances of five or 10 miles. Um, you know, Troy is, Troy is just a, is, is a dump village. Um, and these other places which are, you know, with, with their shining cities and towers and so on, they're also just dumpy villages just a few miles away um, in reality. But even in the myth, they're from nearby. So people come to join the battle for the Trojans. They can come at any time, and they can also get home fairly easily when they need to. Um, the Greeks really, and Odysseus preeminently, are far from home for a long time. And so part of the contrast that Homer is setting up, I talked, or we talked on Tuesday a little bit about Homer's even-handedness, which is really striking that the, that someone giving you an epic of the, uh, um, a Greek writer giving you an epic of the Greek victory in the Trojan War should nevertheless treat the Trojans in the story equally and as, and with the same magnanimity that he treats the Greeks. That's extraordinary on Homer's part. This isn't um, a story about how the good defeat the evil. Um, this is a story about how two great um, um, armies and cultures go against each other with heroes and villains on both sides. Um, and, and it is extraordinary that way. Nevertheless, there's a huge difference in the Trojan experience and the Greek experience. The Greeks are besieging Troy. They are far from home and miserable for that reason, but they are not defending, they, they are not facing what's now called an existential threat either. The Trojans have the advantage of being at home and being able to sleep in their own beds and to, have, to, to um, um, be with their families and with their children. But on the other hand, that very fact means that they are facing and do face and do lose to an existential threat. And Homer is very interested in the pluses and minuses for both sides of the difference in their experience of this war, fighting a war to protect your home versus fighting a war to besiege someone else. So that you could never have a scene like the scene that we're looking at um, on the Greek side. That is, you can never have a scene um, in which Achilles is talking to his wife and his young son because they're far away. Um, the Greeks, those who don't go home, never see their wives and children again. Again, part of the irony here, I'll just say this, part of the irony here is that when Agamemnon finally does come home, do you know what happens to him? He's murdered um, by his wife. Um, 
Clytemnestra. He's been left alone. She, she's been left alone for the 10 years that Agamemnon's at war, um, trying to get Helen back. Um, and Helen, in a way, is the, you could almost say, is the, is the um, um, uh, game piece who um, determines what's home. And Helen with Paris means that Paris is at home because Helen is with Paris. Helen will reappear in the Odyssey um, with Menelaus at his home. Um, so the return home is also the return with Helen. Clytemnestra, who's Helen's half-sister, um, is, is, is far away um, from Agamemnon. When Agamemnon returns to her, she kills him for reasonable reasons, um, some good, some bad. Um, but Agamemnon's return home is going to be a return to death. So Agamemnon's longing for home um, is a longing for a domestic scene that he's never going to get. Um, and there are, there are hints of this. You're supposed to know it, and there are hints of it in the Iliad, and the whole story is told in the Odyssey. Ilona, you were going to say something, and then we'll go one, two, three. Well, just something about uh, Homer describing um, the Trojans as you know, a great man as well. But, you know, it's kind of like, how would we describe the Greeks as great men if they're not fighting a great enemy? I mean, if they were just fighting whoever, um, then it wouldn't be as, it wouldn't have as much impact. That's true, but you will see Odysseus in the Odyssey is described as um, a great man, but the people he fights throughout the Odyssey are um, scary and powerful, but they don't have nobility of soul. Um, and the difference is that in the Odyssey, Odysseus, Odysseus doesn't have nobility of soul in the Iliad. Um, I hope you noticed um, the place where Diomedes says, why are you running away? And Odysseus doesn't stop to listen. Um, Odysseus, except for Homer, Odysseus tends to be a villain in most stories. Um, Homer, one of the strange things Homer does in the Odyssey, it's not clear whether Homer meant this to be strange and whether Odysseus was already largely regarded as a villain. But one of the strange things Homer does in the Odyssey is to take a character who in most um, narratives is regarded as two-faced and untrustworthy. And um, Homer takes him and says, yeah, he is two-faced two and untrustworthy, and yet he's still my hero. But Odysseus never goes up against people with nobility of soul um, in the Odyssey, whereas you get a lot of nobility of soul in the Iliad. And part of that is that Hector's anger at Paris, or Alexandros is his other name, um, Hector's as angry at him as the Greeks are. Um, Hector thinks that he's um, an idiot and a coward and a fool who has brought all this destruction by doing wrong to the Trojans. Hector isn't saying, you Greeks, you're wrong, and you know, of course my brother has a right to do this. He doesn't think that at all. Um, and so Hector's nobility of soul is really, really, I mean, the, the great, I hope it's clear to people that the great opposition in the Iliad, it may not be to you yet, but um, it's what Homer is setting up. And if it isn't, it's partly because Homer isn't yet played all his cards. But the great battle in the Iliad is between Hector and Achilles. That's what the climax um, is going to be as far as battle goes. The climax between is, is the battle between Hector and Achilles. And um, that, therefore, requires you to be thinking about two different kinds of hero. And Hector 
is someone who is who does not harbor resentment, does not sulk, um, has an extremely um, winning and generous um, uh, soul. Whereas Achilles, once he gets angry, Hector doesn't really get angry. Or if he gets angry, he doesn't stay angry. Um, and that's all to the good on Hector's part. That's one reason we like him so much. Achilles nurses his anger incredibly. Um, and so the great battle are, is between two utterly different kinds of hero and two kinds of hero who, if they both have nobility of soul, they are certainly differently noble from each other. Um, Hector, Homer is very, very good at making us like Hector. Um, and I, we do have to go through the scene to see it. But Homer is really good at making us like Hector. Getting us to like Achilles is going to take a lot more work. He does the work, um, but it's going to take a lot more work. He's starting to do the work here. Achilles killed my father, but he didn't strip the armor from him, even though he defeated him in battle and killed him and killed all my brothers. Achilles did the right thing after killing them. Um, treated them as honorable enemies. The question of honorable enemies is the question um, that comes up several times in the Iliad and really matters. It's the guest friendship relationship. It's the battle between Hector and um, Ajax, A.S., where they exchange armor after, um, they exchange gifts after they decide not to fight anymore. Here are the two enemies exchanging gifts. There's um, the guest friendship also that we that occurred earlier um, between Menelaus and one of the Trojans, um, where they exchange armor um, instead of fighting with each other because they have this relationship of guest friends. Um, that relationship, the guest friendship relationship, is something we'll talk about um, when we talk about the laws of hospitality, both in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, you uh, remind me your name, yeah. Samantha. Okay, so Helen was originally with Menelaus, okay. who's Agamemnon's brother, okay. and they're the two Argive kings and their brothers, both sons of Atreus. Um, Agamemnon the more powerful, but Menelaus still very powerful. And then Paris violates, do people know the origin of the Trojan War? Mm -hmm. That um, it begins, uh, well, so here's some backstory um, that Homer expects you to know. Um, Paris, who is the most beautiful um, man on earth, um, is asked by three goddesses who are um, arguing against each other um, to be a judge as to who of the three is the most beautiful. Those goddesses are? Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. Um, so Paris, who's a moron, doesn't see that you can't win if you're giving, going to give a prize to one goddess and the other two um, are going to not win those prizes. Um, and you're immortal. Um, so basically, he's going to get one goddess on his side and get, and, um, get two goddesses against him. This all happened because um, the goddess of discord had, thrown a, had, had set up this prize, um, saying that the prize went to the fairest. That yeah. was Ares, right? Yes. Um, um, so the goddesses um, sort of like, um, like Achaean idol um, try to bribe the judge 
Um, and um, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, says, if you pick me, I'll make you really, really wise. And Hera, um, the queen of the goddesses, says, if you pick me, I'll make you really brave and strong. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, says, if you pick me, you can have the most beautiful woman in the world as your wife. So Paris, being Paris, picks Aphrodite. <laughs> um, and she says, good, go visit Menelaus. Um, thank you for that. Now go visit Menelaus. And, um, and then when he's um, scrambling some eggs, you just sneak out with Helen and go back to Troy, and you'll have her as your wife. So Paris says, sounds good to me. Um, and um, kidnaps Helen. Um, and Helen goes with him. And as you can see from um, the Iliad, women don't have much, this is not true in the Odyssey, but in the Iliad, women don't have much say in their husbands um, or in the men that they're with, although they do have opinions. Um, but their opinions don't take the form of being able to express hatred for the men that they're with. Um, they can express hatred for themselves, however, for being with the wrong men. So there's a kind of strange um, um, obligatory voluntariness to, um, to marriage for women, which is that they have to, they have to voluntarily love the people they're with because they are required to do so because they're slaves. Yeah, and um, she also, but she essentially calls herself a slut for being with him, and yet she's been um, presumably kidnapped. Um, at any rate, it's don't don't try to make that consistent. Um, what what Homer's more interested in is the psychological pressure women are under, um, and all, he's also interested to to. I mean, you'll see Helen again in the Odyssey, and it'll be interesting to think about what you think of her there. Um, but Andromache is the most amazing um, female character in the Iliad. Um, so that's what starts the Trojan Wars. Now Menelaus um, it wants her back, um, but he also wants revenge. Just getting her back um, might be enough. That's, that's some of the peace negotiations that they undertake but that gets scotched. So it's to get her back and to pay the Greeks for all the fighting that they did with all the spoil of Troy. So Troy is very attractive for spoliation, and they plan to spoil it. Um, you were going to say something. Yeah. We'll do, and then two more people. Um, yeah. Well, I, well sort of remind like, me your name. Larissa. Larissa. Um, just sort of related, I had just kind of a question about the overall role of mortal women yeah. in the book. I mean, obviously, for the most part, they're treated as objects, and obviously now in 2010, I'm not going to try and say that that's unfair because we're not in 2010 in the book. Um, but, you know, I think this scene, I think it's only like the second time that a mortal woman actually gets to speak. Yeah. And I feel like that's very significant. And I guess like as we're, we're going through, I mean, is that something, you know, it's like, you know, if we have a woman actually speaking, it's like, should lights be going up? Well, okay. So there, there are various answers to that. I think it's it's worth um, it's an issue worth thinking about. But one, for me, um, you know, I, I have some bad conscience saying this because because we just don't know. But I think at least to get the most powerful experience of the Iliad in the Odyssey, and I 
think that's what you want from literature is the most powerful experience it can be. It's worth thinking of them as written by the same person, which is um, debatable and, um, and hotly debated, whether the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are written by the same person. I think it's less necessary to debate whether, um, well, I'll just stop there. Um, if you think of them as written by the same person, a second question comes up, which is to what extent is the Odyssey something that Homer already has in mind when he's composing the Iliad? And um, if you see them as one really long epic in two parts, then in fact, the Iliad is doing a lot of setting up for an amazing, the amazing character Penelope in the Odyssey. Um, the Odyssey is certainly, um, I mean, it's certainly man in battle, but, um, but Penelope is an extraordinarily important character um, and has much more um, to do in the Odyssey than Andromache or any other mortal woman has to do in the Iliad. Um, that's an important setup, and that's what happens. The Odyssey, as, as again, to, to bring it together, um, the Iliad is about Odysseus and um, the Achaeans far from home. Um, the Odyssey is about what happens when Odysseus um, goes back home um, and the kinds of threats that he faces there. Um, at any rate, the least we can say is that the Odyssey is composed with the Iliad in mind, so that um, the character of Penelope looks back to the way women are described in the Iliad and uses that for the surprises, which are pretty major, um, that the Odyssey is going to do um, in its account of female characters. So I guess I would say just, just it's a, it, keep asking this question, but all the way through to the end of the Odyssey, because there are interesting and surprising things that are coming up um, having to do just with that issue. Um, ben? Yeah, um, I mean, when you were talking about just um, Helen's role in this book, I guess um, I'd, I'd read, like, the first 12 uh, chapters, maybe, of, of the Iliad before this in Bagel's edition, mm -hmm. and uh, I think they, they were treating uh, Helen maybe remembering it wrong but it just I have yeah you um like at the end of book three uh I was I mean in the Lattimore edition it is just so like you know I don't know I I, I was under the impression when I when I read um the Fagel's edition that it was like a kind of a mutual like let's go okay so now. where but, where is this uh I, it's on page one twelve right now. Yeah, I'm, so I'm looking at like uh, near line four forty five ish. Uh huh. Um, uh, and so I caught you up and carried you away in seafaring vessels and lay with you in the bed of love on the island of Cranae. Not even then as now did I love you and sweet desire seize me. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. just sort of like, come, I want you. Um, right. Let's do this now. And I seem to recall. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong because it's been a little while. But like when I when I read the Fagel's edition, I was not so. Yeah like, shocked by the selfishness of this. It didn't seem more mutual. So what do you have, Larissa, um, at the end of book three? Let's see. So which, like, part, when they, like... Just, yeah, the last the last 20 lines or so. Um, let's see. Okay, 
So pa um, Paris like speaks. Oh, like when Paris replied at once to Helen's challenge, um, no more, dear one, don't make me with your taunts, myself and all my courage, this time true. Menelaus has won the day, thanks to Athena. Um, I'll bring him down tomorrow, even we have gods who battle on our side, but come, let's go to bed, let's lose ourselves in love. Uh, like this part here? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, keep reading. Never has longing for you overwhelmed me so. No, not even then, I tell you. That first time when I swept you up from the lovely hills of... Lacadamia. Lacadamia. Uh, sailed you off and away in the racing deep sea ships, and we went and locked in love on Rocky Island. That was nothing... Wait, we went and what? And locked in love. Locked in love. Rocky Island. Uh -huh. That was nothing to how I hunger for you now. Irresistible longing lays me low. He led the way to bed. His wife went with him. And now, while the two made love in the large carved bed, Menelaus stalked like a wild beast up and down the lines. Where could, where could he catch a glimpse of magnificent Paris? Uh, not a single Trojan, none of their famous allies, could point out Paris to battle-hungry Menelaus. Not that they would hide him out of friendship, even if someone saw him. All of them hated him like death, black death. But Marshal Agamemnon called out to the armies, Hear me now, you Trojans, Dardan, Dardans, Trojan allies. Clearly victory goes to Menelaus, dear to Ares. You must surrender Helen and all her treasure with her at once, and Paris reparations bearing fitting, a price to inspire generations still to come. So the tribes demanded his army's word assent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that would have ended the war. Okay, so yeah, so notice the irony there, which is that um, Paris is swept away by Aphrodite and um, put into bed with Helen. The, the main difference in that translation, I think, tonally, is um, what Lattimore has is, so these two were laid in the carven yeah. bed, whereas what you have is they made love in the bed of, of carving. Made love makes it sound mutual, makes it sound much more mutual. Um, I'll look at the Greek, but I suspect Lattimore is a lot more accurate. <laughs> um, what is? Yeah, right. Yeah. Fagels is not as literal in his translation. Um, I tried using Fagels once, and then it just turned out that he's persistently interpreting rather than being literal. And his interpretations may be right, but they may not be. That is interpreting when something is a little bit hard to see what's going on in the Greek, he'll explain it by adding stuff. So they were laid in the bed. You know, if you're, if you're a really literal reader, you would say, well, who laid them in the bed? Um, Aphrodite. Sorry? Aphrodite? Yeah, well, in a way, yes. But also, it's just that's the Greek way you would put, I think, as I say, oh, look, but that's the way you would put. And they lay down in the bed together. But Fagel said, well, what that really means is they started having sex, but I'm not going to put it that way. I'll say they made love. Um, and then suddenly, there's interpretation there where Helen seems much more into it than well, yeah, the. Like yeah. It makes it sound very long. Well, this is his wife went with him also, but oh, yeah. for Homer, there, there's uh, there's um, that that's um, um, studiously uninterpreted. That is, did she go because she wanted to, or did she go because she had to? Um, he's just giving you the facts. Um, but the making love, that's more than just the facts. Um, you know, so so if 
you know, if you're filming this, you you know, you would have to decide whether, you know, the famous moment in all films of this sort where you have to see whether the embrace is returned or not. That is, oh, I love you so much, and you see one person embracing, and then we cut to the other side, and are her arms clasping or are they not? So if you were filming it, you have to decide. Homer doesn't tell you. Yeah. And the Alexander Pope edition, which is so yes. different. Yeah. Uh, he writes, while well, these to love... Delicious. You're reading Pope? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's a lot harder to read, but I think yes. I like it a lot more. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, no, Pope is great. Yeah. The only problem being that he probably um, didn't really read Greek. And so, <laughs> so what, he's po what he's doing is poeticizing yeah. um, other translations. But I really like the way it's written. Okay, so read it. Yeah. Yeah, he just writes, while these to love delicious rapture yield. Okay. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, but interpretive. Yes. <laughs> and it would be very different if it were while he to loves delicious yeah. rapture yields. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so it is highly interpreted. And one thing I like about Lattimore is he doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, and some of that makes it obscure that he's not explaining what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but some of the obscurity is obscurity Homer wants. Um, it's, I thought someone had Lombroso, but maybe they're not here today. Um, all right, well, I will try to check the Greek um, for, for Tuesday. Anyhow, let's go on with, this, with the domestic scene. But notice also, yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing us that passage, because notice also how much the other Trojans hate Paris, even in that scene. They, none of them are going to say, they, if, they, if they knew, they would have told Menelaus where he was. That's what we hear. They're not interested in saving Paris's life. Um, it's almost a duty that they have to fight for this jerk. Um, it's also important to know this is this is um, since we started talking about guest friendship, I just want to put down this marker now. Um, one of the insults that both the Trojans and the Greeks use against Paris is that he's an archer. Um, that the first time you see it, you may not realize that that's a that that's a phrase of insult. But at one point, Menelaus says, "You." Archer. Um, in the Iliad, there are two kinds of fighters. Um, there are fighters like Agamemnon and Hector and Menelaus and Diomedes and so on who will use spears and swords. And then there's another kind of fighter, the archer, archers, people who use bows and arrows. And those who use bows and arrows are regarded as the lowest of the low. That's regarded as cowardly fighting. It's not that, that either side um, disallows archery, but they are regarded as unfair fighters. Yeah. Is it because of like proximity? I remember a scene yeah. where you know, it's, it's like, oh, you archer, why don't you come fight me with the sword? You know, right. Face to face. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because it is face to face. Because to do, because so much of the um, Iliad and the Odyssey is about the aspect, the strange and surprising aspect of the laws of hospitality, which is that it is ignoble not to treat your enemy as a human being. And to treat an enemy as a human being is to be face to face with them, not to be a sniper, not to kill them from afar. Killing from afar is dehumanizing an enemy. And they may be your enemy, but there is a deeper relationship between you and them, which is that you are both fighting for glory in a context of glory where each of you acknowledges the humanity of the other. Um, and that's a crucial fact that in Homer plays out both in the scenes where, for example, Hector and 
and Ajax exchange gifts. Um, in the scene when Diomedes and I forget the name of the Trojan don't fight each other because they're guest friends. Um, in these scenes where deeper than the fact that they're trying to kill each other is the fact that they are acknowledging each other's as humans. That plays out in those scenes, and it plays out in Homer's persistent acknowledgement of both sides as human, even though he himself is Greek. So he's showing the enemies acknowledging each other as human, and he himself is doing that. Yeah? What about, like, Greek depictions of gods as having bows and arrows? Like, do you think that Apollo isn't? Well, so Apollo, who is the archer, um, do you remember at the very start, the, the reason, Homer explains the reason Apollo is called the archer is that um, Apollo is the lord who strikes from afar. And what striking from afar when you're talking about Apollo is? Disease. Is plague, is disease. Um, some of you probably know that Stephen Greenblatt is very interested in the um, 15th century metaphor of invisible bullets which is what the Algonquins talked about, um, the um, Europeans who'd come to Virginia. And um, suddenly, Algonquins who weren't um, immune to European diseases started dying um, in, in huge numbers. And they talked about the invisible bullets that the Europeans used against them. Um, that's, a, that's a rediscovery of the Homeric idea of plague as invisible arrows. Yeah. Um, Similarly, though, uh, Artemis, Apollo's sister, is literally the huntress, literally an yeah, archer. Yeah, but so against animals. Okay. To, to, use, to use bows and arrows against humans is to treat them as animals. And that's wrong. And both sides regard that as wrong. It's only the low who do that. Um, and a word of praise is you fight face to face. Um, you are one of those people who fights face to face, and that's good. Um, and spears count as face to face because you because you have to see the person um, and be close enough to them that they can throw a spear back at you. Um, but using um, bows and arrows and 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 killing from a position of being hidden, um, that's cowardly. Yeah. Why does Zeus favor Athena to the extent he does? Because I mean, with every other reaction interaction between gods, it's kind of this very one sided Zeus either dislikes them, such as in Ares, um, finds them annoying, such as in Hera. Um, Aphrodite, he's like, shush, go away. <laughs> like, I'm not quite sure. Well, he, no, he favors Thetis also, which is why he's going to, um, but he does it for Achilles' sake. Part of the irony of the story, and then I really, we really do have to do the scene, but part of the irony of the story um, is that the gods are totally into it. Um, and they get really, really, you know, vexed and, and, and um, um, passionate about what they're watching. But for them, it's a game. Um, and um, they get really angry at each other, but they have no idea or they couldn't care less what's really at stake. For them, it's cockfighting. Um, you know, all the gods are Michael Vick. And um, that's part of what Homer wants you to see, is that it's a story about humans and gods where the gods as moral beings are hugely inferior to the humans. Um, and um, even though the humans are, are always praying to them, they're praying to gods who are childish. 
and um, who are just who are just rooting rooting for their various sides um, as a way of of having boasting um, rights among each other. Um, but for the humans, it's life and death. Um, so the question of how the gods are treating this, um, they're just for them, it's fun, um, and that's pretty terrible. Um, Ilona, and then. Just because uh, I think Athena. I mean, he gave birth to Athena. Yeah, but so. he gave birth to most of them. No, the, oh right, that it come from parts of his body. Yeah, no, no, but yeah, Athena springs yeah. out of his head. That's yeah. the Athena's birth is out of Zeus's head, um, and she has no mother. Yeah. Just quick about this. Um, one thing that struck me about that was when the Trojans make a sacrifice to Athena, and she just ignores yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I had actually forgotten about uh, that she was angry because of uh, Paris. Yeah. Because Hera and her throughout it just hate the Trojans, and I couldn't remember why at first because it's so arbitrary. It yeah. Seems. Yeah. Yeah, and it's because and it's a it's a fight between the gods over unimportant stuff becomes a fight between humans, which is life and death. So anyhow. Um, what she says then is, it was brilliant Achilleus who slew my father, Aetion. This is page 164, book 6, line 414. It was brilliant Achilleus who slew my father, Aetion, when he stormed the strong-founded citadel of the Kilikians, Thebe of the Towering Gates. He killed Aetion, but did not strip his armor, for his heart respected the dead man and burned the body in all its elaborate war gear. Um, so once more, I draw attention to this fact that Achilles did not strip her father's armor. When Achilles comes into the fighting here, it will be interesting to see what he does with the armor of those he kills. And he piled a grave mound over it, and the nymphs of the mountains, daughters of Zeus of the Ages, planted elm trees about it. And they, who were my seven brothers in the great house, all went upon a single day down into the house of the death god, for swift-footed, brilliant Achilleus slaughtered all of them, as they were tending their white sheep and their lumbering oxen. And when he had led my mother, who is queen under wooded placos here, along with all his other possessions, Achilleus released her again, accepting ransom beyond count, but Artemis of the showering arrows struck her down <coughs> in the halls of her father. Um, I don't know if that myth survives. Yeah. What? I can't remember if I'm remembering this correctly, but didn't another part earlier she say, I wonder if my brothers are fighting today? Um, I that was Helen. Helen. Oh, that was That's Helen, Helen. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, um, and then this great, these two great lines... Um, which are incredibly moving. And this whole scene is incredibly moving, but then she says to him, Hector, thus you are father to me and my honored mother. You are my brother, and you it is who are my young husband. So you replace, I have no one but you. You're my father and my mother and my brother and my young husband all at once. So if he were to go, everything would go, please take pity upon me then. Stay here on the rampart that you may not leave your child an orphan, your wife a widow. Um, go to page 190. Um, <coughs> this is... Um, <coughs> That's on page 190, I'm wrong. 
Hang on. Sorry, guys. I brought the wrong copy home, so it's underlined in the other book. Um, well, one thing, go to page 189, um, because this is, this is something to notice also. On page 189, we do have um, Teukros, who is um, a henchman of Telemonian AS, and he is an archer. Um, and therefore um, not such a good guy. Um, and what he does is he persistently um, takes a shot, and as the man, this is line 270, and as the man dropped and died where he was stricken, the archer would run back again like a child to the arms of his mother, to Ahaz who would hide him in the glittering shield's protection. So that notice here that Hector is described as a mother to Andromache, then Aeas is described as a mother to Teucros. It's not only his fathers that these fierce fighters are described, but somehow in, um, in intense and moving moments, they're sometimes described as mothers. I partly draw your attention to this because um, there's an amazing moment in um, Purgatorio where something similar happens. Um, and so when you get to it, you'll see it. Um, but where someone is suddenly and unexpectedly described as a mother. Um, the thing that I'm looking for, I'm not finding right now. Um, but Hector himself, when he describes Andromache later on, um, what he says of himself. Hector is describing himself. Um, remember, Odysseus describes himself quite wonderfully um, as the father of Telemachus. Um, that's, in a way, Odysseus's greatest boast about himself is that he is the father of Telemachus. Hector describes himself um, as, um, he, at one point he says, um, and, I am the, um, and I am proud to call myself of Andromache, the young husband. So this moment, and I thought it was, an, I thought I had it, but I don't. Um, but this moment, when when um, Andromache says, "You are father and mother to me, and you are my brother, and you are my young husband," it makes a difference to Hector. He remembers it later on, and uses the same words of himself and defines himself in this way. Um, after. Okay, I guess we need to stop here. Do we need to stop? Yeah, we do. Um, okay, read, read to book 18, but we'll, we'll start with this scene again. Um, I will look up the end of book three, but we'll start with this scene again um, on Tuesday. And as I say, if you're falling behind, just remember to catch up um, over Rosh Hashanah. But you have Labor Day to read too, so this is good labor. You can't go anywhere because of the hurricane. It's all good. I certainly hope.